Hello and welcome back to Love at First Screening, the show where I, rom-com enthusiast Madison, introduce my friend, co-host, and resident genre skeptic Chelsea. That's me. To all the feel-good. Cliché. Romantic. Questionable. Hilarious. Occasionally humorous. Films she's never wanted to watch. Well, Chelsea... We're just out here living a whole new life, figuring out how to do this recording thing on a different platform than we had been using. Yeah, yeah. It's a whole new world for us in the studio. It actually feels like we are in a studio instead of having 12 different programs running uh, to produce one podcast. I'm really optimistic about this. It feels so much more professional. I feel like we are podcasters now. Before we were in the at the kitty table. And now we've we've stepped up. We've graduated. We're eating amongst <laughs> the adults. We're we're even given a little glass of like with a sip of wine in it, you know, just a little taste. That's what I feel like right now. <laughs> you know, Chelsea, um, this past Thanksgiving, my parents were not able to attend. We went we always go to my great aunt's house, uh, but my parents were not able to attend this year because my dad was having back surgery. My mom stayed home with him. And even though there were two empty seats at the adult table and none of my adult cousins were there, like my cousins who are around me and my older sister's age, they were not there. They were with their respective partners for Thanksgiving. We were still not allowed to take those two empty seats. They were held like in memoriam of my parents instead. I'm so sorry. Everyone still gives me shit for drinking, like drinking a beer. Like, it's this brand new thing. Just to pick up on a new segment that I'm going to be running where I introduce a cocktail that you can drink while watching each movie. I'm going to start doing that from this episode on. I intended to start doing it at the beginning of the season, but... I know a couple borderline alcoholics that listen to this that will be appreciative of this new segment. Yeah, I thought about doing a drinking game every episode... But I decided that I wasn't going to show that level of professionalism or dedication. Instead, I'll just tell you what to drink while you're watching it, and you can decide when to sip it throughout. Great. So what is the cocktail? Well, before I can tell you the cocktail, I have to tell you the movie. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They don't know yet. (laughs) They don't know. It's a secret. It's been a secret. Uh, No, if you listen to last week's episode, you already know. But... This week we watched Roman Holiday, which came out in 1953, and I decided that since it is set in Rome, we would do as the Romans do, and I chose actually two drinks that you could have. Both of them contain Prosecco, but both of them are inherently Italian. So if you want to watch this, you should do it with either... And Chelsea, this one is for you. A Negroni Spagliato. With Prosecco in it. Yes. I know that's what Spagliato means. Yeah. I I, I know that, just for the record. We had to finish it, though. But you have to say it that way because the internet. Uh, Anyone who wants to make one at home, I'm not going to give you measurements because I like to make drinks by feeling the measurements with my heart. But I can tell you what is in it, and that would be Prosecco. Campari, which, ugh, and red vermouth. I've never had a Negroni Spagliato, but I've had a regular Negroni before, which is, instead of Prosecco, it just has gin. 
you know, Chelsea, it was so bitter. You know, when people describe drinking something, they're like, oh, it tastes like cough syrup. That's always the go-to. I felt like this literally could act as you know, a wound cleanser. Instead, if you're like me, instead of having a Negroni Spagliato, you can still stay Italian and do a classic Aperol spritz, which you still have the Prosecco in it. And then you also have Aperol. You can also top it with a little bit of soda water or something similar. It's a little less bitter. Uh, and that's what I would go with. So now you know what to drink while you watch. Thank you so much, Madison. You're welcome. For your Beverageino recommendations. I'm just more sort. Oh, I almost said sorry so hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry. Are you sorry? Fuck. <laughs> I am so sorry that I didn't have one, someone hand deliver you one of each of these drinks before we started recording. I will try to fix that in the future. You know, I'm wondering if this is the way to get my... I have a couple of friends who are engaged to each other. And I'm more friends with the bride in that group. We've known each other for over a decade. Uh, But I lived with them for a short period of time. And so I got to know uh, the groom a little bit better. He is a loyal laughster, which is hilarious because, you know, I've not known him all that long. Uh, But I, I joke with his fiance all the time. And I'm like, you know, I feel like... He's really gunning for if you both need a kidney, that I'm going to give him my kidney, even though I've known you longer. And this is, you know, I, I don't know if I even could give them a kidney. This is just the the sentiment more than and neither of them needs a kidney, to be clear. But they love a cocktail. Uh, they're always making fun, fancy cocktails when we come over. And I'm not that much of a co- like I, I feel a little bit overwhelmed, but now that we're going to offer cocktail suggestions to go with these movies, maybe my friend of 14 years, I think almost, will now <laughs> listen to the podcast on a regular basis. Incredible. I'm glad that I could just continue to draw people in. That's what I'm here for. I draw them in, you keep them here. It's the dynamic we have going. Is that is that true? I'm keeping people here and you're bringing them in. That's so sweet. Oh, that's so kind of you. <laughs> Well, I'm also invited as a guest every episode. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So we switched to this new software, which is what we were talking about at the beginning. And I am using the host account. And so I invite Madison as a guest. And so I went, oh, this is incredible. So really, I'm the host of this show. And you're just my guest every week. Because she has to be invited to join the call (laughs) so we can record this now. And I'm really tickled by this fact. I feel like this has always been the case. This is nothing new for me. It's my comfort zone now. Well, do you want to tell us what this movie, Roman Holiday, is all about? Oh my god, you're not ready for how much I'm going to tell you about this fucking movie. I was, I texted Chelsea earlier and I was like, look man, you don't understand. I, I guess I'm just a bit of a slacker in general. I could do a lot more into the deep dive of these movies and the background into them. A lot of the ones that we've done so far, though, don't have huge implications because if we're being completely candid, the romantic comedy genre isn't exactly groundbreaking, 
when it comes to a lot of film history. But this movie specifically ended up having a lot. Do you know how many Wikipedia articles I read? So many. (laughs) What a great source. Only the best for laughsters. Exactly. Luxury. Uh, But so what I'm going to do first, I'm going to go through a breakdown of the plot of the movie and what happens in it for anyone who didn't want to watch it. Guys, it's free on Pluto TV. I actually paid uh, $4 on Amazon to rent it so I didn't have to watch ads because watching advertisements infuriates me. I would rather throw a billionaire $4 than watch I'm so broke. I definitely watched it on Pluto TV. And the only annoyance was that my pet peeve about, and I get it, I get it. I'm watching something for free and the price I must pay is watching these advertisements. But it would be nice if they switched up the advertisements. Even if I was watching advertisements for the same product or service, it would be nice if at least they cycled through at least three or four different commercials for that product or service. Instead, every commercial was for some football game. I don't even know who the two teams were. I don't even think these teams are going to the Super Bowl. I don't know. I don't follow sports ball, but that was every commercial. It started with helmets was the first thing I saw. And it was like rivals or old friends become rivals. I don't know. I I didn't care. But my point is I had to watch this commercial every single time a commercial came on. And it just got old really, really quickly. So here is my plea to all streaming services can you cycle through your advertisements more often? Because here's the thing. I actually think if they cycled through them, that you'd be more likely to watch the advertisement. But the fifth time I've seen the same fucking thing, I'm not watching it anymore. And I've now created, you've created a resentment within Mm -hmm. me, the consumer. So I'm definitely not going to use your tax services because (laughs) I'm tired of seeing the same fucking commercial. In fact, I'm going to seek out your competitor. (laughs) oh my god yeah it's the exact opposite of what they want and they've done it to themselves exactly and you know chelsea there's only one sport that matters women's roller derby Mm -hmm. i'm not gonna elaborate because it's just the truth so the way i'm gonna do this is i'm gonna walk whoever didn't watch it but is listening to this now through the plot of the movie like the high points of everything but then i'm gonna really get into the people who created this movie and the historical implications of what was happening sort of behind the scenes, you've been forewarned. Now I'm going to launch into my monologue. In this black and white classic, Princess Anne, played by Audrey Hepburn, longs for a break from her tightly scheduled tour of European capital cities where she is meant to promote goodwill and improve trade relations for her unnamed nation. After a difficult day in Rome, her doctor Feelgood gives her a shot and advises her to do exactly what she wishes for a while after she breaks down into hysterics like anyone would do if they're having to say the same things over and over again and shake a lot of babies and kiss a lot of hands. Once alone, she sneaks out of the embassy to witness regular city life, but before she gets very far, the drugs kick in and she ends up lying on a bench where Gregory Peck's Joe Bradley finds her. Joe is an expatriate reporter for the American News Service there to cover the princess's visit to Rome, but he fails to recognize her and thinking she's just drunk on a bench and worried about her, he takes her home to sleep it off. Well, first he tries to just leave her unattended passed out in a cab. We're going to overlook that part for the sake of continuing this. 
The next morning, Joe hurries off late to work and gives his editor, Mr. Hennessy, fake details of the princess's press conference, uh, and Hennessy calls him on his bullshit, saying that the event had been canceled, and shows him a news item about the princess's sudden illness with a photo of her. That's when Joe realizes that the princess is asleep in his apartment. Seeing an opportunity, he privately calls his photographer friend to meet up with him so he can secretly take pictures and Joe can get this massive exclusive interview with the princess. He asks Hennessy how much it would be worth to him. Hennessy offers 5000 but bets Joe $500 that he will not be able to get it. For Chelsea and all other inflation enthusiasts, the amount that that would be is $55,788 for the story, and the bet is for $5,578. I, I did look that up because, you know, I love an inflation calculator. Joe hurries home and hides the fact that he's a reporter. He offers to show the princess around Rome, uh, and she introduces herself as Anya at this point. She declines Joe's offer to show her around Rome and leaves, and then she ends up exploring an outdoor market, buys a pair of shoes, kind of people watches the daily life of Rome, and then gets her hair cut short, which I think is just such a classic uh i'm now becoming a woman and leaving back childish ways but we'll get into that more later i just had to note that here and then joe follows her and then convinces her after randomly running into her to spend the day with him and he meets they meet up with the photographer at a street cafe and the three of them gallivant through rome in a sort of tourist jaunt then that night they go to a dance where the barber had invited her to earlier. Government agents rush in and try to forcibly take Anne back to the embassy. Joe Irving and the barber end up rushing in and saving her from the abductors who are trying to take her back to the embassy. She joins in the fight. They end up in the river. She and Joe. They kiss. They dance. They end up shivering on a riverbank. Back at his apartment, drying their wet clothes, they share tender, bittersweet moments. I did not write that. I pulled that straight from Wikipedia because I liked that phrase, tender, bittersweet moments. But then she knows she has to go back to her royal responsibilities. She's had her fun, but she knows that it's time to go back. And she has Joe drive her to the corner near the embassy. They kiss again and she bids him a tearful farewell to resume her duties as princess. He decides not to write the story and tells Irving that he's free to sell the photos if he wants, but can't can no longer cut him in on the $5,000 exclusive deal because he's not going to write it. They show up at the postponed press conference, much to the princess's surprise, and Joe reassures her in words that she, but not the other reporters, understand promises that he will not print anything about their day together. At the end of the interview, she unexpectedly asks to meet the journalist and speaks briefly with, with all of them. When she reaches Joe and Irving, Irving gives her the photographs as a memento of Rome. And she and Joe share a few innocuous words together before she reluctantly departs. And that's the end of it. They had their wonderful day and then life has to resume. But... This film faced many roadblocks to getting created from issues with filming on location, lowered budgets, and having to conceal one of the writers, Dalton Trumbo. He was placed on the Hollywood blacklist. 
The Hollywood Blacklist was an entertainment industry blacklist. It was broader than just Hollywood. It was in the United States during the early years of the Cold War. The blacklist denied employment to entertainment industry professionals believed to be or believed to have been communists or communist sympathizers. Actors, screenwriters, directors, musicians, and other American entertainment professionals were barred from work by the studios. And this was still during the time where employment was very studio contract based. Now it's a bit more freelance, but essentially, if you're an actor, you were bought by a studio. And the same is true for a lot of the working staff, writers, etc. Your work was heavily tied to a specific studio or group of studios if you were lent out. The first systematic Hollywood blacklist was instituted in November of 1947, the day after 10 writers and directors were cited for contempt of Congress for refusing to testify before the House Un-American Activities Committee. Whoack. These people were subpoenaed to appear before the committee in October, and the contempt citation included a criminal charge, which led to a highly publicized trial and an eventual conviction with a maximum of one year in jail, in addition to a $1,000 fine, which if you're keeping inflation score, that's just over $11,000 today. And Dalton Trumbo was one of the original 10. The blacklist lasted until 1960 when Dalton Trumbo, a Communist Party member from 1943 to 1948 and one of the original Hollywood 10, was credited as a screenwriter for the film Exodus in 1960 and publicly acknowledged by actor Kirk Douglas for writing the screenplay for Spartacus. That being said, Trumbo's contribution to Roman Holiday was only fully recognized in 2003. The film is most notable, though, for being the film that skyrocketed Audrey Hepburn to fame. Up to the point that she starred in this film, she had been in a few small European roles, but nothing significant of note in the States. Gregory Peck, on the other hand, already had established his career prior and actually used the film to give his career a bit of a facelift. He originally considered not taking the role because he felt like he may be too old to play across Hepburn, but decided, eh, what's a little shot of youth in my career and just kind of went with it. His contract gave him solo star billing with Hepburn listed much less prominently in the credits. Halfway through the filming, Peck suggested to Weiler, the director, that he elevate Hepburn to equal billing, an almost unheard of gesture in Hollywood, because Peck knew that Hepburn would be a prime candidate for an Academy Award based on her performance up to that point. The director bumped up up her billing, and Hepburn did, in fact, win the Academy Award for Best Actress. She also won a BAFTA. She won a Best Actress in a Motion Picture for the Drama category in the Golden Globes, and she won a New York Film Critics Circle Award for Best Actress. She was the first actress to win a Golden Globe, Academy Award, and a BAFTA for a single performance, and she's also one of 17 artists, as of the time of this recording, to hold EGOT status, which means she, in her career she received an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony, which are the major awards that you can get as an artist performing, you know, either music, actress, that sort of thing. So overall, this film was pretty groundbreaking in several ways because it had blacklisted people working on it, you know, oh God, the communists, 
Um, but it ended up overcoming a lot because they didn't even want to film it on site. And it was originally supposed to be in Technicolor. And what they did when the director insisted on having it actually take place in Rome rather than on a soundstage, they ended up bumping his budget down significantly so it could no longer support being in color. Instead, it was filmed in black and white, and it still absolutely swept uh, the box office and the award season. Wow. And what a performance it was. Uh, That is the most uh you've ever given us look it's it's season two i feel the need to step it up and i don't know you just say there are communists involved and i get a little interested chelsea because i support rom communism and that's Mm. what this is (laughs) so chelsea um now i get to guess if you enjoyed the movie, you know, I don't know. I worry you got bored with it. You know what? I'm going to say that it's not something you would ever rewatch. You're you're correct. I, I think this movie's fine, but ultimately it's just not something. Yeah, it's just not something I would rewatch. I don't necessarily begrudge the film or want my time back for the one time that I did watch it. Like, I don't regret watching it, but... Yeah, definitely wouldn't be something that I want to watch again. I feel like this is just one of those classic movies that you have to see once. Sort of like Casablanca. It's just one of those things that everyone talks about and it has merit. Sort of like Citizen Kane, too. I mean, they're just these movies that either widely launched someone's career that ended up being incredibly notable later or had some amazing film technique that's been used a million times since but was revolutionary at its time it's sort of like how everyone who's a film nerd just raves over like hitchcock a lot of people if you're gonna watch a hitchcock movie today you're like wow birds That will be what's on our our merch, our t-shirt. Wow. Birds. Madison Hill about the birds. (laughs) But I, I do think, I feel like it's just one of those things that you have to see once and then it's fine. You don't need to do anything else. So obviously this is the oldest film we've watched and I anticipate it might be the oldest film we will ever watch. I suppose that's very possible. maybe there will be an older film, but considering this is 1953 and I think the oldest film we've watched up until this point was When Harry Met Sally, which was 87. So that's a big gap. Yeah. So we really jumped back. Fuck. Chelsea, you're going to make me do math. You absolute dick. I did not say you had to do the math. 34 years. I gave the people, I gave the laughsters both years and I figured they could do the math themselves. So the fact that you did it is just, it really speaks to your generosity as my guest. <laughs> Look, Chelsea, I just assume that no one that listens to this podcast can accurately do anything math related because most of them are our friends. Yeah. <laughs> Although I do have to say, I met someone over the weekend that I had never met before who really enjoys our podcast. And it was a wonderfully surreal experience. I found you a new host is what I'm trying to tell you. Great, great. 
Hit me up, that person. You know who you are. You could be a star. <laughs> you could make everybody stars. Um, but yeah, no. So this is the oldest film that we've watched up until this point and probably will be the oldest film we watch ever. There's obviously visually a lot of differences, stylistically a lot of differences from the films we've watched previously. And it it almost feels unfair to compare it to those other films because there's just so much that changed about film itself in from the time this movie premiered to the time that When Harry Met Sally premiered, you know? I was thinking about how I've heard a lot of people say that they don't really like black and white film because it's quote unquote boring. And I don't have that same problem. I There are black and white films that I've watched and really enjoyed. Um, and obviously black and white, while not very common anymore, has still been used as a style choice in more modern films like Schindler's List, you know? So, uh, and it's, an artistic choice. But I don't think it's the black and white that bothers people. I decided watching this movie that the reason people think black and white films are boring is because they typically don't have a lot of musical scoring or yeah. so, like music playing in the background. So like when there's this big giant sweeping romantic scene in a contemporary film you would hear probably a pop song in the background underneath or some kind of love ballad, but a song you would recognize. It could be that Jack Black would be scoring it. Exactly. Jack Black would be scoring it or you're hearing a T-Swift song, much to the chagrin of many people, but much to the delight of many others. Wait, wait, wait. I want to point something out. You brought her up first this episode. Boom! Yes, I did bring her up, but I um, I'm not wrong. How many how many rom coms? How many movies with romance in them is Taylor Swift used as the as the music? Well, Chelsea, it depends on how delicate the situation is. You know, if it is it a love story? Are they getting married with paper rings? It depends. I didn't go this far. No. I just said, look, I I don't particularly care one way or the other about Taylor Swift. I guess we're going off on a tangent. Um, <laughs> I don't care one way or the other. I don't list like I'm I am not a fan. I would not consider my fan, myself a fan. I have to hear a lot about her because my sister is a Swifty. You are a Swifty. Other people in my life are Swifties. I love many Swifties. So unfortunately, this is just the world that I live in. And I like things that make other people happy in that they make you happy. So I'm not trying to take Taylor Swift away from you. It's her lack of percussion. That's why you don't like it. It doesn't have enough percussion for you. That could be it. I love percussion. I need a beat. I'm sorry. I'm just picturing like a like a teen movie where someone goes give me a beat <laughs> incredible i think these movies the pacing feels weird because there isn't this extra layer it's very much the visual component is there but the audio component is empty and so you feel this weird as a contemporary consumer of film 
you can feel a little jarred because you're very used to having all of the space filled up, the visual space, the audio space filled. And in an older film, the audio component a lot of time is lacking for what I assume is because the technology wasn't available or if it was, it was more expensive. And if a film doesn't have, you know, a big blockbuster budget, they're not going to be able to accommodate that. And they're going to cut that before they cut some of the other elements of the film. And I completely understand that, but I've decided that that's probably a, at least a contributing factor to why people don't love old film. However, now that I've explained why I felt uncomfortable or I've decided I felt uncomfortable watching this movie, uh, I will tell you what I love about old movies. And that is... I miss the way that dialogue used to sound in old movies. I'm not sure if it's just how they spoke in general. I suspect that it's probably the style that in which they spoke to better be understood by the audio recording equipment that they had at the time. They really had to enunciate their words. And everything was sort of like performed in a way that's just not done anymore and perhaps if we switched back I wouldn't necessarily love this but I think that's one of the things when I watch an older movie that I really enjoy the the way they talk is really it feels really nice and I it's very pleasant to listen to them speak I also it, it I in part could be the recording equipment itself like the way that it was recorded is different like the microphones that existed then are different it was also probably recorded on a tape versus now it's everything's digital so I do think that contributes overall to shaping this very specific sound that old movies have and we just they don't they don't sound like that anymore so anyway I I do enjoy that element of old movies yeah I also love just the acting style of old movies because one of my notes literally just reads the melodrama like when she's going into her full hysterical meltdown because let's be honest i would love to be able to just have a full hysterical meltdown in that same way i don't know i feel like it gives you know what to quote one mr uh harry styles the thing that I like about this movie is that it feels like a movie in that it's not reaching or trying to necessarily be hyper-realistic, you know, very much grounded in a genuine sense of reality. It's a movie. It allows itself to be dramatic. It allows itself to be over the top. And I feel like even in dramas nowadays, sure, you might have the beautiful extensive monologue that occurs that really marks it as a drama. But I like a little bit of overacting. That's what we would consider this now. Then it was just acting. Now it's overacting. I I will agree with you that it's kind of nice to, you know, dip your toe into this era of overacting where that's just what the style was. However, I am going to disagree. I did not enjoy her temper tantrum, mostly because it felt very childish, but in a way that felt demeaning toward her. Like, 
as if we were infantilizing this princess who's being held up as like she has all of this responsibility and I guess in comparison to I feel like if you have this now the I think there would be a mental breakdown but I think it would look very different I think if you filmed this movie if you had this movie now a similar story now the woman would break down but I think there would be a lot it would be a lot more anger as opposed to whining and Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? This felt I felt like I was watching a two-year-old throw a tantrum. And look, I'm I'm not saying sometimes I want to throw a tantrum like a two-year-old because I'm very <laughs> upset. But on screen watching it, because she's a princess, and even though she has all this responsibility and you understand why that's why she's breaking down, it's hard in some ways to have sympathy for someone that acts very juvenile. And maybe this is my own biases but I don't know I I think it was just very difficult to watch that on screen whereas like I can understand being angry and resentful at this job that you didn't apply for like you were just this responsibility was literally handed to you the day you were born and having like I can sympathize with the fact that this is not what she wants but it's difficult for me to watch her throw a tantrum like a three-year-old. I think I would have, it would have been a lot easier to watch her. Uh, and I also think this, I think the reason this rubs me the wrong way in this is that to a certain extent, this is the 1950s and we're not that far off from women being committed by their family members just for having a bad day. And so, <laughs> yeah. I For being a teenage woman. Yeah, so... I think that's why I another reason why that just kind of kind of irks me. I feel like there's power in anger. And look, women women are told they're hysterical today for being angry about things that they have every right to be angry about. So I'm I'm not trying to say that we women would be more respected if they were angry versus like throwing this kind of hissy fit. But I think that as a woman watching another woman get upset, I can, I think, better relate to the anger and I feel the power in the anger as opposed to, I don't know. I just felt like she was portrayed very childlike and I didn't love it. I do have a comment on that, but first I must break into our first ad break of the episode. This episode is brought to you by the memoir Spare by Prince Harry. (laughs) Oh my god. If you would like to learn more about what it's like to be born into a role much like Princess Anne, please pick it up at any bookstore and learn everything you've ever wanted to know, including how he came to love Meghan Markle, that one time he got frostbite on his penis, and also just some genuinely interesting insights into... The royal family, its operations, and the institution of it. Did you read this? Yeah, I fucking read it. (laughs) Wait, wait. I just saw today on Instagram, the uh, you know the account Reductress, which is like satire? Yes. They had one of those news articles, and it's like, I lived it. I listened to a man talk 15 hours uninterrupted, and it was a photo of a person with headphones, and then it had a picture of his book next to it, and I lost it. It was so funny. 
That is genuinely my experience because I did listen to it rather because I knew that I would not be able to commit myself to sitting down and reading it. I just couldn't dedicate my time that way. But I did get the audiobook form of it. And I will say that some of it is genuinely interesting. Um, Some of it is, as my grandmother would say, interesting. To your point about her uh, and her tantrum being very child-based, I actually liked that. And I'll tell you why. Because everything that we've seen up to this point, the, the scene that precedes it, with where she's complaining about her nightgown and the, the lady-in-waiting uh, who came across way more like a nanny. She was like, oh, your slippers and here's your milk and crackers. And she makes a comment about essentially how innocent and how juvenile and stuffy everything in her life is. And she's trying to break out of that. And I actually really liked how she threw her tantrum because it seemed to match the language that they were speaking. And I felt like it, in a way, garnered her a needed reaction, because if that's how they see her, then maybe they will actually take note of what she's saying if she's acting in that same way, in that same role. And so that didn't bother me as much, because I feel like if she had tried to express it in a genuine and mature way of you know, lashing out in anger or something like that. I mean, obviously they were dismissive of it anyway, but they would have been, it would have been more jarring because she would have been stepping outside of her role in that instance. So I didn't mind that. And I also, I guess it just, I really, a huge part of me longs to be a toddler throwing myself to the ground screaming, like not like maybe the sidewalk as it's raining do I just want to be Lilo from Lilo and Stitch where she's just on the floor crying? Yes. Leave me alone to die. Exactly. That's, I'll add this to my list of things to talk about in therapy next time. Princess Anne could have benefited from some therapy, not some guy shooting her up with hallucinogenic drugs, roofies. I don't know what they were. She wasn't hallucinating. They were downers of yeah. some kind. But speaking of the downers, her little trip outside and uh, Gregory Peck's character finding her and wanting to leave her on the bench, then wanting to leave her in the cab. And I'm like, I look, I know it's not your problem, sir, but also maybe don't leave a woman in a vulnerable situation. What a real gentleman. Wow. But I will say, Chelsea, that I think that she didn't need therapy because she did the next best thing she got crisis bangs yep yep but can i say she looked incredible with that cute Uh, little haircut oh my god she looked so cute honestly audrey hepburn is just the queen of rocking the short hair looks and i think it happens more than once um i've only watched i'd say three or four of her movies i got on a kick but i think in at least one other movie of hers she also has the more dramatic hair transformation and it always it's just it's stunning i i have actually never seen audrey hepburn in anything because i have not seen a lot of classic movies i've the ones we mentioned earlier casablanca and citizen kane have not seen them 
I've not seen Breakfast at Tiffany's. I have not seen My Fair Lady. Look, My Fair Lady, um, your sister may take offense to this. I don't know, because I know she's a huge musical person. I, I would consider My Fair Lady to be a hard pass. I think I got about 40 minutes into it. I allowed myself to get that far in it, and then I just abandoned it. I was I was pretty over it. And then um, Funny Face, I would also kind of consider a skip. But Breakfast at Tiffany's, I, I would consider calling it a, a decent watch. I mean, My Fair Lady, we've already seen Pretty Woman, which is My Fair Lady. We've also seen The Princess Diaries, which is sort of like an adult or a young version of Pretty Woman. So really, if you've seen those two movies, I don't think you need to see My Fair Lady. No. And hey, if we're bringing up Pretty Woman... Uh, you were talking about how it'd be kind of difficult to compare a film like that, just with the change of how scripts are written and how films are made, to compare the contemporary ones we've been watching to this one. But the scene where he sticks his hand into the uh, facade in Rome and screams, I'd say that's a it's a cute little you could you could tie that a little bit to the ring box snap joke. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. It's both just hilarious screaming and laughter. I did find that scene to be really cute. I thought it was adorable. Ultimately, I think I just, I don't really remember a lot about this movie and I didn't watch it that long ago. I think everything sort of blends together in a gray haze. You would say it's not a lavender haze? No, Madison, I would not say a lavender haze. Your face right now is so contrite that you even said that, even tried to make that joke. <laughs> you know, sometimes I wonder if there should be a physical, uh, like a, a video aspect to this podcast, but I don't want to ha- look half decent. I could show up looking like something you pulled out of the drain with you. That's fine. I don't want to have to edit video as well as audio. No. So until we get picked up by a production company that will take care of all editing aspects. I just, I don't have it in me to edit video. I have exactly one podcast network that I would want to be on and they would never want us on there. This is not their biz. They do serious reporting and shit. What do you mean? We are seriously reporting on romantic comedies. Yeah, but they report on like modern fascism and stuff really what it is is i just want to be best friends with the head of creative and then best friends with someone else that they know that's it i just want to use it for networking i want to get on the network to network i will say the one thing that i was in the very beginning of the film is she's keeps taking off her heel and so you keep getting these shots that are supposed to be under her dress and you're looking at her legs and she keeps taking her shoe off to rub her foot or scratch her leg or do something because she's uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and my note was heels suck and so does propriety (laughs) see my reaction to that was i'm really glad that this took her to stardom because we have a rule no free feet Mm, yeah Mm -hmm. but see that's just the thing that's what's wrong with me because I see there's this viral pair of pink, like chunky sandals, strappy heels. They're like Barbie pink. 
heels from Target going around right now. And all I can think is, God, the amount of money I would spend on those. At least $30. I would spend $30. Just a lot of money. Where would I wear them? Why would I want to wear them? I don't know. Couldn't tell I you. don't know. I think the biggest issue with trying to segment this movie is that it doesn't follow a trend of having a very linear plot of everything does bleed together because I think that's exactly how, a, you know, a touristy day out would go. It's the lack of schedule or schedule, both are correct, of the movie. I think I kind of like that it just kind of all bleeds together and there's not a lot of segmentation because it speaks to the idea of just being lost in a beautiful city with no agenda Nothing to do other than have fun, which we should all do sometime. Chelsea, do you want to go to the Poconos and just have a Roman holiday? Yes, that's literally all I want. (laughs) Well, hold on. You know what? While we're recording, let me go ahead and check my schedule. We'll get some dates lined up. Everybody wants to hear this. So... (laughs) (laughs) So I did look on the Wikipedia mostly to reread the plot. Because, like I said, it all kind of bled together and I was trying to figure out how to have anything constructive to say about this film. (laughs) And I did, there was a tab on Wikipedia for adaptations. I don't know if you looked at it, Madison, but there is another movie that I'm sure you have seen that apparently is an adaptation of this movie. And I believe that is also possibly a rom-com. Say more. And I believe it stars Julia Roberts. Notting Hill. It's been so fucking long since I've seen Notting Hill. I have never seen Notting Hill, but according to Wikipedia, under the adaptations tab, it says that the 1999 Richard Curtis film Notting Hill has been likened to a 90s London set version of Roman Holiday. And I guess... The princess character is replaced with Hollywood royalty. Yeah. So might be worth a watch for us at some point. You know what? Should we just change around this this season and just throw it in? We could throw it in. I feel like if we're going to go Roberts, we should boot Roberts. Yeah. And we can do Runaway Bride at a different point. Perfect. Fuck Richard Gere. We're bringing Hugh Grant back. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say that you should cut all of this, but I kind of want the people to hear, fuck Richard Gere. Let's bring back (laughs) Hugh Grant. We gave you guys a little sneak peek. Hopefully there aren't any diehard Runaway Bride fans out there that are going to revolt. You know what? I did tell our listener that our laughster that I met I'm two beers in. Let me tell you everything we're watching this season. (laughs) So now this is changing. I'm already changing it up on her. This is why she has to be your new host. She would be way more consistent and reveal way fewer trade secrets. Well, look, you didn't know going into this movie that Notting Hill was apparently a likened to a 90s version of Roman Holiday. I know, right? And that it might behoove us to compare these two films and therefore watch Notting Hill, which was not originally on the list. So what are you going to do? Look, we are professionals and professionals adapt. 
It's true. We roll with the punches. We're flexible. Actually, I really wish I was flexible. I was thinking the other day how maybe I should start doing yoga because have you ever seen, I don't know, have you ever seen a redwood tree? Not in person. But you understand the concept. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's my level of flexibility. Incredible. Yeah. Why a redwood as opposed to many other trees? I'm glad that you asked that, Chelsea. I'm actually huge into dendrology, which, if you didn't know, is the study of trees. Let me tell you why I specifically chose the redwood. The redwood is a hardwood, which means that it has an intricate root system and is also, uh, like the name would suggest, a very hard wood. I opted to not choose a soft wood like a pine tree because a pine tree has a tap root, which is not an intricate spreading system, but rather one long descending root into the ground, occasionally with some like, you know, little fibers off. Think like a carrot, all right? And those, not only do they produce softer, more pliable wood, but they also are more easily blown over in storms because of their lack of a spreaded grounding root structure. And did you know in the state of Georgia, there are two specific primary pine trees that you can tell the difference between them by the needle length. And those two pines are the Loblolly pine and the Virginia pine. Yeah, this is actually Madison from the future revealing that she doesn't actually know as much about trees as she previously stated. This is due to the fact that a redwood is actually a softwood. I did just Google that to confirm and I was very wrong. While it is a very strong tree, it is not in fact a hardwood. Please do not take any dendrology advice or facts from me. Other than the stuff that I say about pine trees, that's actually true. I am being 100% sincere when I say this. This is my favorite tangent you've ever gone <laughs> off on. I could listen to you talk about trees for another three hours. <laughs> oh, God. I'm not going to force the listeners to do that. But you can bet your ass that when we get off of this recording session, I have 800 more questions about trees. <laughs> Starting with where you're getting this information from so that I can read it myself. Well, to be honest, Chelsea, um, I actually learned a good chunk of this in a plant science class that I took while I was very active in uh, the agriculture pathway at my high school. But I didn't learn much more about it because I did set that teacher on fire. Which you mentioned in a previous episode yeah so i'm really glad that we're coming full circle mm -hmm. to your blazing high school glory days to quote the incredible trio boy genius in another life we were arsonists except in this life maybe i just am already that's from their new uh, hit song twenty dollars off their upcoming album they have three songs put out so far the Jonas Brothers? No, Boy Genius. Who is? Oh, I thought, okay. You said Boy Genius and I thought Spencer Reed from Criminal Minds, so. <laughs> I was very confused. And then I was trying to come up with a trio of male artists. The Jonas. Honestly, um, 
trying to picture Julian Baker, Lucy Dacus, and Phoebe Bridgers as the Jonas Brothers, because I feel like I could assign each of them a Jonas Brother, but I'm not going to do that on the air because it would cause too much tension. I can't put my opinions out there like that. Wait, wait, wait. Who is this group composed of? Julian Baker, Lucy Dacus, and Phoebe Bridgers. Okay. Wow. I really lost the plot there when you were... I got so confused. I, I've i never even heard of this group. Oh, well, they, they do really sick harmony. I mean, I've heard of Phoebe Bridgers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're essentially all kind of along that indie vein. Lucy Dacus has the lower register and her lyrics are just so fucking awesome. I mean, all of them are great lyricists. Julian Baker really brings in those killer guitar riffs and Phoebe Bridgers is there to provide that unobtainable high harmony. Okay. Yeah. Music lesson for Chelsea. Yeah. Highly recommend listening to um, $20 by them. Add it to my Spotify. Perfect. We'll play a whole. We'll play the whole song now, um, and not worry about the copyright. Just kidding. Um, but yeah, this episode is also brought to you by those three tracks out now. Chelsea, this one I told you going into this that we may be three episodes in, and it may not be a romantic comedy. So I want to walk through this but first of course do you have I, I i didn't really go into this with any urge for changes no i yeah no i don't have any fixes that would have required me to retain more information about the <laughs> film than i did so no that's fair um okay so for anyone just tuning in now We are very professional podcasters who uh, take an incredibly critical lens to romantic comedies in a true academic fashion. So what we created was rom-com criteria has three different parts to it to determine if it is in fact a rom-com. The first is, do they date? So are there moments in which the audience sees a connection between the romantic pairing or pairings, if there's multiple, deepening through dates, flirtation, that sort of thing? Did we laugh? Because not only does it have to be romantic, it also has to be a comedy. It's in the name. Uh, so were we meant to laugh? We may not actually laugh, but sometimes there are setups for either physical comedy or you know, a, an intent to be humorous, even if we didn't necessarily laugh. And finally, is love in the driver's seat? Is love propelling this story forward? If you took out the romance, would there be much left? So Chelsea, did they date? I guess. I would say that this one for me is a pretty firm yes, because it's the classic falling in love through a series of silly romps yeah yeah you know what uh, yeah sure they date I, i'll give you that yeah they date <laughs> they date you see them evolve from strangers to friends friends into lovers and strangers again that's a song lyric i can't remember who wrote it but it's a really beautiful song really sad song but i would say that there's there's a 
enough of a buildup. Of course, this, and again, this all happens over the course of a day. Did we laugh? I laughed. I guess. I I don't remember laughing, but it's not to say I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't sound very promise. I don't remember laughing, but maybe I did. Uh, I, there were a couple of times that I noted physical comedy. Of course, the thing we mentioned earlier where uh, they're looking at that very large face and he's saying you can't stick your hand in because they said that your hand will get eaten off and she kind of does it and nothing happens and then he does it and pretends to scream. So there's that. But also when he takes her home and he's telling her she needs to sleep on this, what looks like the worst couch ever. (laughs) She's going to sleep on that. uh, And then he has like a single bed. But when he comes back up after going to get a coffee, she's in his bed and he kind of has to like pull the sheet and roll her onto the, like he has to move the couch next to the bed. And then he, it's like you're doing a magic trick where they, (laughs) you have all the dishes and they pull the, like the tablecloth out and all the dishes stay, except he does that to roll her onto the, couch Mm -hmm. that was pretty funny and she also does not wake up during any of this because the drugs have really taken a hold of her so yeah i think that there are funny moments and if i was an audience member in 1953 i'm sure i would have found even more funny because i'm sure there's things that they talked about that were just so far removed from that we didn't understand the reference like i'm absolutely positive that that happened so yeah okay one moment that i found humorous was the back and forth when she's kind of i I know she's not drunk but i'm just going to say drunkenly because it's the closest approximation uh when she's drunkenly quoting uh the shelly poem and she goes keats and he goes shelly and then she just keeps insisting that it's keats it is actually shelly he was right but I just, I thought that was really cute and adorable. And I felt like it set the groundwork really well for their dynamic. Now, that being said, is love in the driver's seat? I don't think so. I think uh, adventure is in the driver's seat. I think self-discovery, growing up, coming of age. Those are all things that seem to be happening here. Romance is not one of them that's certainly not the driving force she left the castle with the intention not castle (laughs) it's an embassy (laughs) but i mean it's a metaphorical castle it's a metaphorical castle tower (laughs) she leaves her tower with the intention of following the doctor's orders she's gonna do what she wishes and goes out into rome and then When she wakes up and has all of her faculties again, she's sort of deciding to make the best of the situation Mm -hmm. and have a day where she can experience life as normally as she possibly can and probably ever will again. Yeah. So I would say that the driving force on her side is experiencing life. Mm -hmm. And through that experience of life, she decides in the end to go back to her duty. And on his end, the driving force is money. I mean, he he's trying to make they're both trying to make the best of the situation that's sort of been dumped in their lap. Mm -hmm. And he sees a payday. 
Uh, we know that he is at least two months behind on rent and he's in a tough spot financially. He I, also loses at poker earlier in the movie. Romance is not driving this plot. Love is not driving this plot. So this is not a romantic comedy, Madison. I would argue that love drives his evolution from being, you know, money-minded, career-minded. He ends up abandoning what is essentially $55,000 because he's come to if not love her, then at least respect her on a person-to-person basis. She's no longer a spectacle to be written about or a figure to be written about. He's able to humanize her and abandons a significant sum of money. But it's not a driving force for her at all. Her story is being human for a day, essentially. But I would argue that it's not driving his story. That is a character evolution. Yeah. In the end, his decision is made by this love or respect he has for this person that he spent time with and gotten to know. But that's not what's motivating him through the movie. He's being motivated by a story that would essentially award him $55,000. And in the end, he's gotten to know her and decides not to go through with that but that's still the driving force for him yeah though that's his motivation throughout the whole thing yeah that's that's very fair so i would argue that this is this is a two out of three which technically the skin of its teeth kind of sneaks by because it's two out of three hey according to meatloaf two out of three ain't bad Two out of three ain't bad, but two out of three is not a rom-com. We've given a rom-com award to a 2.5 where one of us says it passes and one of us says it doesn't. Or not that, when we say it half passes one of the steps. So would you say that this is now blacklisted on the basis of rom-communism? Exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. (laughs) Also... Just a side note, Gregory Peck, is he attractive? I like I don't know, he just seems next to next to Audrey Hepburn. I just don't get it. He just seems very plain. So I, I guess he's tall. I don't <laughs> don't I would consider Gregory Peck attractive. I think the issue here is the obvious age difference that's probably throwing you off. It would be like pairing, I don't know, I think I've forgotten every actor and actress that ever existed. Clooney? Yeah, it'd be like pairing... He's older. Yeah, it'd be like pairing Clooney with... Florence Peele. It all goes back to her. Yeah, it, uh, but it, I'm just surprised you didn't mention her. I look, she popped in my head like 17 times while I was thinking that, and I was like, I can't fucking mention Florence Pugh again on this podcast. It's getting weird. Are you afraid she's gonna take out her audio restraining order and you're not allowed to say her name? Yeah, it's terrifying. I don't even know if that's an actual thing. I don't think it is. Um, I'm not defaming her. I'm instead like awkwardly praising her. 
So, <laughs> but I think that's allowed. But I, I would say that it, it's not too dissimilar to that sort of thing. It's actually a lot more jarring to see her. She's in a film called Sabrina. She's uh, played across Humphrey Bogart as the love interest. And it's, that's even more jarring. because That's even more like Clooney Florence kind of comparison at that time, like watching it. But I think it was just, and I mean, it still is to a degree, but I think it was just a much more common practice that you get the established, distinguished gentleman to play across the young, naive, very pretty girl. And I will say that the director had some, uh, in my opinion, just disgusting comments to make about Audrey Hepburn about why he cast her. Because he said that he was looking for the opposite of, he was looking for, as he put it, the anti-Italian look. He said that she was perfect because she had no tits and no ass. I don't like it. I don't like it. I mean, look, shout out to Gregory Peck for giving her equal billing. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't know. I've seen a lot of people shit-talking like old classic Hollywood men during this era and rightfully so rightfully so a lot of them were assholes domestic abusers sexual harasser types because they were allowed to because they were men with power and money and fame but from what I've seen Gregory Peck seemed like a stand-up guy please let me know if I'm wrong please write in and tell me all the terrible things that he's done from what I can see in relation to for example, Humphrey Bogart, he's far less of an asshole. And she also won an Academy Award for Sabrina. She won two Academy Awards in two years. Good for her. She's great. She also won, like, humanitarian awards, too. Well, Chelsea, we established that you have little remembrance of this movie and would never watch it again. So now I go completely blind into your potential watchability score. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and for those of you who are just tuning in, our watchability score is reminiscent of a walkability score that gauges properties based on how accessible things like restaurants, shopping areas are by foot. And so with that in mind, we rate on a one to five scale, one being stranded in the desert, two, back roads barbecue, three, strip mall in suburbia, four, four blocks from a transit stop, and five, best coffee in the whole city is right downstairs. And as I said up at the top, I have no plans of watching this movie ever again. I think it's fine. I don't have, it didn't make me upset or angry. I, I give it a, 2.7 maybe somewhere between a 2.5 and a 2.7 i i don't want to give it a two but i don't really feel like i'm gonna give it a three it's pretty forgettable for me so there you go you're getting really fancy with your decimals i know i know wow i didn't i didn't realize that you were a railroad tycoon out here able to afford fancy decimals in this economy I, I'm going to end up rating this one higher uh, than you. I'm going to give it a 3.5. 
I think it's historical significance bumps it up for me. I like Audrey Hepburn a lot. I'm also just a sucker for black and white movies. I am. I liked Gregory Peck in this role. I felt like it was just one of those movies that you put on in the background with all the windows open while you're hanging out with your best friend drinking an Aperol spritz. And that gives it a 3.5, which means that there is a Starbucks in the Target, baby. Incredible. Thank you. Thank you. What are we watching next time? I don't know. You tell me. So glad you asked. It's actually one that neither of us have watched before because it is another listener request. Uh, I I saw the last listener request already because it was clueless. I mean, you'd be clueless not to watch that movie ahead of time. That was rude. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, the next one that we're going to watch is Lady of the Manor, which is a very new movie. It came out in 2021. Is that new still? I guess I would consider that very new, but I feel like the last three years have just been a sludge of all the same year. Mm-hmm. So. So you're saying that the movie basically came out this year. So I think that's pretty new. Yeah, it actually came out yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, we're going to be watching Lady of the Manor came out in 2021. I know absolutely nothing about it yet because I haven't watched it and I haven't researched it yet. I like to do things right beforehand when there's a pressing deadline and I can't escape it. Do all my best work under pressure. Well, I'm hoping that we enjoy this movie more than we enjoyed the last true listener request that neither of us had seen which was Rosalind, and neither of us liked that movie. Uh, that was also a brand new movie when we watched it. It had only been out a handful of weeks, I think. So I really hope we don't shit talk this one, dude. I think we'll stop getting listener requests if that happens. As we've stated every time, we tell you to write in to loveitforscreening at gmail.com with your recommendations. We do warn you that we could tear the movie to shreds and not like it. And so you write in at your own risk. But we still encourage you to write in and request things for us to watch, as well as tell us what your favorite color is or what your favorite rom-com is or how wonderful we are. We would really appreciate the encouragement. Yeah, no, I tell you, meeting somebody who was like, oh my God, I love your podcast. My head can't fit through a fucking door anymore. I had to remove the door frame. My ego is so inflated. It's like a giant balloon on my head. I don't know. In some ways, I think it's better that that was your experience. I don't know how I would handle a stranger telling me I was wonderful. Because I don't trust people I know telling me I'm wonderful. So why would I trust a stranger? You have to keep in mind there is intoxication involved. Okay, okay. And if email is not your style, you can follow us on Instagram at Love at First Screening, where every week we have a poll following the newest episode to ask you just hard hitting questions like I usually use the most recent poll that has happened. But as I've run out of polls (laughs) (laughs) because I I didn't do a poll for either of the bonus episodes. I don't know. I think that we did actually a pretty good in-between poll that wasn't necessarily uh, 
episode related leading up to the bonus episodes, which was an open-ended question rather than like a pick one situation, which was who do you think should replace Madison as Chelsea's guest every episode? Which I, you know, our social media manager asking that question, I was dying to know, but I was just too polite to ask, you know? So our social media manager is the one who answers any question that you send through Instagram and they just send it to us in a very um, official email, just giving us a little, a little update, a little catch up on our number of DMs. Astronomical. We cannot get through them without the help of our social media manager. So, mm-hmm. but you can vote in our poll. Every week following the release of the newest episode, make your voice heard. Keep democracy alive because it is hanging on by a thread. Well, Madison, this has been a real time. Mm -hmm. Do you have any closing remarks? Just um, things that you want to tell the people? I would like to tell the people that pizza toppings are only satisfying and they are evenly distributed across the pizza. I don't want a bite that is just the topping with nothing else. Because if I wanted that, I would just eat the artichoke without putting it on a pizza. Wow, that's way more political than I was going to go. <laughs> I was going to say that we should continue to defend our forests, whether that be in Atlanta or you know nationwide. We should all be forest defenders. Um, But I, shit. Wow. You really went there. You let that stance be known. Once again, we are Love It First Screening here every Wednesday talking about all of the rom-coms you love, love to hate, and everything in between. So until next time.